So what we do is we go through Mark's Gospel and um, every now and then we take a break and we go on to something else. But we're in Mark's Gospel, we're really in Easter week. Um, just, it wasn't any brilliant. And the, the joy that Lily got from that, did you see how proud she was? Um, that made her day. Um, uh, so well done. Can I also just say, um, with regards to the talk, so we've got the Brenda talk. Um, this week, I realized I'd stopped sleeping a little bit and I was getting irritable and I realized I felt under real pressure about this talk. So we have, uh, 200, oh yeah, don't worry about the slide, sure. Um, we've got 250 seats in the Abundant Life Center, the Life Center after Henry Street. Um, it's a, so who this girl is, is she's a lecturer in the University of Maynooth. Uh, she's an extremely good communicator. And what she will do is she will talk about the different types of happiness. So she'll talk about hedonistic happiness, which is to live for the moment, and what's called eudaimonic happiness, which is to live for a big picture. And we're completely upfront about this. This is being organized by three churches and Crown Jesus Ministries. We're completely upfront about this. She is going to talk about how her faith gives her purpose in life. But this is an event that you can feel comfortable as a bridge to bring your not-yet-believing friends to. Um, we had it before. We had some neighbors, and they really enjoyed it. Um, I, in fact, Sheila's daughter was there, Karen, and Karen said at the end in the talk session, there was a smaller thing. She said, I'd have come here just to observe your sense of style. She's quite a stylish woman, you know, in her own unique way. But, but that's a completely different talk. Um, but this is an event you can feel confident. And one of the things that we've really wanted... In fact, when I first came here to this church, um, something that I felt guilty about myself was that as a pastor, there were two things I felt very inadequate about. One was the prayer life, that we would have a, a prayer life in the church that was really vibrant. And, and I didn't know how to bring that about. And in some ways, that came about because of Amy and Connor this week. We did something that I've been yearning that we would figure out how to do. We had a prayer evening then this week. We had about 40 people. It was absolutely brilliant. It was everything that I'd ever hoped that we would do, and we will do it soon again. Uh, and it, it, it actually really worked because of my neglect. Because as Amy said at the end, Paul asked me to do it, and then I didn't hear from them again. And, and actually, that's what I want. I want us to have a sort of situation where we give someone a task, and we trust them, and they deliver. And Connor and Amy delivered on that. The other thing we're doing about prayer, and I'm going to talk about this during the sermon, is we have the prayer room. I'm not sure who's on prayer today. Lydia and Elijah, like two better people you couldn't pray with. Okay, two more compassionate people. And I want to have a culture in this church where it's natural to go for prayer. Any of you got burdens? I've got burdens. I, you know about my dad, and I, I'm breaking at the moment. And I'm going to go to a prayer. I know someone else who already told me they're going for prayer. I want, in fact, what I would love if we ever redesigned this building is to have a designated prayer room that was comfy and that we 
we would be naturally able to, whether to go to prayer room or just pray with each other. Prayer, that's the other thing. But the second thing was, what on earth to do about evangelism, particularly in our, our day? What do we do about evangelism? How do we reach? When Nathan went onto the streets, I'm sure you found it, that when we did that street work, international people were very open to talk about faith. But white Irish people, really resistant, really resistant. It was really difficult. Like some of them were actually quite insulting when you, you went to them. You just got, did you find that? No, you, don't worry, you can't contradict me. Oh, you had to leave. So, <laughs> Well, you're going to find that on Patrick's Day if you come. The other thing I want to say is I want to thank Marie because I was, I was beginning to go under with this talk because I'm not a good organizer. And Marie, and I was beginning to lose sleep, and Marie asked me how I was. I said, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. And she gave me, she said, what you need to do is write out every job you need done for this talk and give it to me. And I've given Marie and Caroline a list uh, of jobs. And I'm not talking about, you know, I'm, I'm looking for people who will say, I will take this and I will do this and it will be sorted. So if you, and of course, all of you, like the biggest thing is invite your friends. Because I ask people to sign up with regards who's coming. You know how many names from that signature? Zero. Now, I know you've invited people, but I lie in bed, wait at, wait at night going, what if no one turns up? Maybe I should just trust God. Anyway, will we get into God's text? So, uh, now my 25 minutes starts. We have a thing in this uh, service that uh, the sermon lasts about 25 minutes. I know some want it longer, but I also am married to someone who would like it shorter. Um, I'm not saying who that is. Uh, <laughs> but that does narrow down the options a little bit. <laughs> Last night, myself and Caroline were with some of our friends. Uh, they're not church people. Um, they're great people. Um, it was a re- Oh, yes, good point, because I, I did say they could listen to this on Spotify. Um, and I, did, I felt actually a bit of a failure because I wanted to talk about my faith. And I had, even on the way up from Killarney, seeing my dad, I'd figured all these little segues into how we could talk about faith, and I completely failed. Um, but the funny thing is, um, when Dee asked me, she said, so what are you speaking on tomorrow? And I said, I'm speaking on the idea that Jesus hates religion that doesn't affect how we treat people. He hates religion that doesn't affect how we treat people. I told them my opening illustration so a friend of mine works for Sky News, David Blevins. He's going to do a talk for us. Actually, it's going to be in the autumn. And David Blevins uh, works at Sky News. And Sky News is owned by Rupert Murdoch. As far as I know, he still owns it. And Rupert Murdoch also owns Fox News. So whenever um, David, when he was Washington correspondent, he would go across to Washington, and they would work out of the Fox News um, studios. And one day, David is watching one of the top guys. I don't know whether he was an executive or one of the anchors or whatever. But this guy was shouting at someone like an intern, a young woman, and effing at her and all the rest, and totally belittling her. And then after a while, David actually had to talk to the same guy. 
So David knocks on the door, and the door opens, and whoever it is, he looks, and he's shocked because the man has his Bible out on his table, and he's doing his morning devotions. And, and obviously, that just doesn't match. If how we think about God doesn't affect how we love, it's hypocrisy. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus hates hypocrisy. And religion, including in this country, has been full of hypocrisy. Now, what we have here before us is a sandwich. I remember working on this passage before and uh, asking Caroline, you won't remember, this was years ago when we were at Chill, but I said to Caroline, what can you learn from a sandwich? And she goes, not much. Well, this is a sandwich. It's got a bread, meat, and bread. If you're a vegetarian, bread, guacamole, and bread. <laughs> um, so, so the bread is the fig tree. See what happens here? You've got a fig tree, it opens up. Then you've got the cleansing of the temple, and then you go back to the fig tree. It's all one unit. And, and the way you understand it is seeing how those things interpret each other. They're one unit, and the fig tree story tells us what's going on in the temple. So Jesus is coming from Bethany. Bethany was two miles from Jerusalem. It's where he stayed. I, I can measure out two miles in my head because where I lived in Cork was two miles from town, or at least that's what my mum told me. And um, I can get the distance of the, the road. It's two miles. He's staying outside Jerusalem in Bethany. And one of the things that struck me about this, and this is an aside from the passage, is that, that Jesus was the best friend. Like Bethany was Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Remember when Lazarus dies and they, they say, look how much he loved him. I, I love the fact that Jesus is this friend, and he's friends of this family, and like you couldn't get more chalk and cheese sisters than Mary and Martha. Like I have a brother and sister, and how they came from the same womb, and this is against me, I shouldn't say this, um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? They're so different, and Mary and Martha were so different, and yet Jesus is this sort of friend who can be friends friends. Actually, Alan, we, Alan, Alan, exactly. Uh, we might close that back door. Jesus was the sort of friend who could be friends with all sorts of people. And, and what a sort of friend he was. Look at he, who he is with the disciples. And, and the reason I say that just as this little aside is because at the moment when I'm under a little bit of stress, the thing that has helped me is to think about what sort of friends Jesus is including the sort of friend who is gentle with your doubts. You know, I love uh, in Jude where it says, be merciful to those who doubt. Because as much as we'd like our faith to hold us in the hard times, isn't it sometimes that those are the times we doubt the most? And yet Jesus is the sort of friend who's merciful to us even when we feel we don't know what's going on. Anyway, he comes from Bethany towards Jerusalem. There's a fig tree, and the fig tree, it's out of season. It's got flowers, but it has got no fruit. And he goes to take fruit from that fig tree, and it produces no fruit, it has no fruit, and he curses it. 
Now, if you look up the Bible, there's a great dictionary called the Dictionary of the Hard Sayings of the Bible. The fig tree one comes up. I personally, you know, a fig tree is an inanimate object. Its feelings weren't hurt. But what's going on? Why does he curse this fig tree? Well, you understand when you realize that the fig tree was a picture of God's Old Testament people. In the Old Testament, his people were referred to as the fig tree. Their worship centered on the temple, and they're producing no fruit. Their religion is empty, and as we'll see, it produces no love, and therefore Jesus says, your time has come to an end. The temple is going to be destroyed. And then he goes to the temple. And do you remember last week we said that Jesus was gentle? Gentle and riding in a donkey. And now he's fierce. I grew up in a family where we never got angry with each other. Well, the funny thing was I would get angry. But you'd never let your mom know you were angry. You'd, You'd go into your bedroom and shout at the roof. But anger was always seen as a bad thing. And let's be honest, the vast majority of our anger is bad. But Jesus gets angry when it's appropriate. And I remember as a theological student struggling with this. How can God be loving and angry? And a couple of things really helped me. In a book that I have always been meaning to read, J.I. Packer's Knowing God, he says this about Jesus' anger or God's anger. He says, God's anger is different than your anger. Our anger is selfish, ignoble, impatient, capricious. But God's anger is perfect and pure and consistent with his love. And then there was another book that I read. Uh, It was a commentary on Romans. And this is what someone said. He says, the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. If you think about it, an indifferent person or an unloving person never gets angry. Oh, well, they do, but for only selfish reasons. But when they see injustice, they don't care. Something, as we were going to see, was terribly wrong in the temple that was insulting to both God and unloving towards people. And an unloving person would have gone in and said, doesn't bother me. Whereas the Son of God who goes in and sees God's name being dishonored and people being hurt is moved by holy, loving anger. So what goes on? The other thing, too, is I'm not going to bring out all the texts here that come from the Old Testament because there's a lot. But one of them is Malachi chapter 3, which says that then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And it's interesting, isn't it? It's the Lord. I meant to just check in the Old Testament. I'm pretty sure that the Hebrew there will be Yahweh. And yet again, what's happening is that Jesus is shown to do things that were said of God. One of the ways we know, as opposed to, say, the Jehovah Witnesses who say that Jesus was just the archangel Michael, one of the things that we know that Jesus is God for is because he does things uh, that, that were spoken about God doing, and he takes titles that God had for himself. 
And he's saying, I am God the Son. And here comes God into the temple, the Son of God. And he it says, who can endure the day of his coming? Because he'll be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. So the Old Testament has spoken of this moment. And Jesus' life is living out this moment. And he goes into the temple, the place where people were supposed to go and meet with God. And he's angry. And why is he angry? He's angry because just before this period of time, the high priests and the council around the temple had decided that they would allow trading to take place within the temple outer court. And it wasn't trading that was the problem. Trading was okay. It was the location that was the problem because this outer court was the only place where non-Jews were allowed to go. So if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, and you wanted to go and find out about the true and living God, this was the one place you could go and learn about him. And instead, could you imagine, I I was in, in a cafe with a friend not so long ago, and, and we wanted to have a deep and meaningful conversation, and there was noise everywhere. And when the, the waiter took ages to come, we gently slipped away because it wasn't the sort of place that we could have a nice chat. Well, you imagine that you're in a search from God. You're one of the people from the nations, and you've heard about the God of Israel, and something within you has said, this is real. And you go to that outer court, the one place you're allowed to go, and what do you hear? You hear bleating and cawing and noise and trading, and you just leave. And so it was a most unloving act towards the people from the nations. And it it angers Jesus. I just want to make one comment to look at where he says, my house will be called a house of prayer from the nations from the book of Hosea. Now, one of the things we have to be very careful of is this is not a temple, this building. This is a rain shelter. This, this is just a rain shelter. We're actually, thankfully, not too precious about that. But if we lived in, you know, our meeting in, in some church that has 500 years old, you'd be sure there'd be some people who'd be thinking this is somehow holy ground. It's not. It's just a room we meet in. We're the temple. Well, Jesus is the temple first and foremost. He's the one where we meet God, but he makes us his household. And who are we supposed to be? As God's people, God's building, we are supposed to be a house of prayer for the healing of the nations. Think about that. That's part of our function. That's why prayer is so important, is what we do. That's why I want a culture where, you know, the prayer night, which was so well attended and so good, is just like one of the key nights for our church, where there's people queuing up to go into the prayer room to be prayed with, where there's people after the services praying, where there's, where there's what we have already in your WhatsApp groups, your small groups, people praying for each other and praying for the world. Because as a community that we're called God's household, we are to be a people who pray for the nations. And then you get to the second piece of the sandwich. Well, that was the meat. And you get back to the bread, the temple. Not the temple, the fig tree. So the fig tree, and then what we see is in the morning as they went 
along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. It had come to an end. The the Old Testament people who had not produced fruit, a religion based around the temple that had not produced fruit, was now going to bear God's judgment, and Jesus wept about that. And it happened in history in AD 67 to 70. Just a couple of decades later, there was a rebellion among the Jews, and it was destroyed, it was crushed. In fact, someone was telling me about going to Rome recently. Caroline, do you remember who it was who told us about going to Rome recently? Or John. And, and right there, there's a, there's a thing called the Ark of Ti- Arch of Titus. And, and he was one of the commanders who went in and destroyed, and they destroyed the temple, and it's not being rebuilt. It came to the end of its function. And now, instead, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, the meeting place with God, We go to Jesus, our temple. He makes his presence within us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and our religion must be fruitful. I have time, according to my watch, to tell you one story uh, that I had that was down here as maybe or maybe not, pending in time. Charlotte gave me a book the other day. Well, actually, what, what we did is Charlotte recommended this book. It was a really good book. And Charlotte recommended this book. If you know Charlotte, she goes mostly to the evening service. Charlotte recommended this book, but um, she said, I said, I'll buy it off you. Because, oh, I'll tell you why. Because I tried to get it online and I couldn't find it. And, and she said, do you, do you do Revolut or something? I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm not very technical. Every time we go to McDonald's after evening service, I'll buy you a McFlurry until I've bought you enough McFlurries that the book is bought. <laughs> And then I stupidly said, I will go 20 euro. 20 euro, the book's not worth 20 euro, but anyway. <laughs> but, but I'm still buying McFlurries for Charlotte, and I finished the book. Um, the book, and I've told this to Charlotte, was one of the most frustrating books in some ways, because it's quite pop psychology, and yet one of the most transforming books I've ever read at the same time. You know, some of his stories were absolutely brilliant. Some of his applications were absolutely brilliant. And there were some times I was going, ah, come on. You know, because he stretched things a little bit. But he tells this great story in the book, at the end of the book, about himself, this guy writing. He says, I went to a Christian college. You know, one of those, uh, it was in America, one of those Christian universities. He says, there was a points system, a spiritual point system. Can you imagine? And in order to graduate at the end of every term, you had to build up a certain number of points. And how did you build up the certain number of points, he says? Well, if you went to chapel on a Sunday, that was three points or whatever. If you went to the prayer meeting during the week, that was another three points. So there was a list of things that you built up. Like, that's just crass outward religion. And, and anyway, he said, but the thing is, I didn't get enough points and I got kicked out. But he said, the interesting thing, or I think I said I left before I got kicked out. But the interesting thing about this is he said, and he says, I don't say this with any degree of malice or I told you so or whatever. He says, but things began to fall apart. The New Testament lecture was struggling with cross-dressing at the weekends. The Old Testament lecture was having an affair with his son's friend. 
Because outward religion can't change you. Spiritual point systems can't change you. You don't, as much as I want everyone to go to the next prayer meeting, don't think you're a better Christian somehow because you're there or because you go twice or you're a small group or whatever. No, it's not a spiritual point system. It's in the heart. And what does Jesus say about religion that's not affecting your heart? He calls it hypocrisy. And the the hypocrite in the old times, in Jesus' day, they, they acted literally, not with so much with costumes, with masks. You know, they would hold a mask. And that's where the word hypocrite came from. It was someone who put on a mask. And and if you're sitting here this morning and you say, but I sometimes feel a hypocrite, I say, well done. Because the true hypocrite never is worried about being a hypocrite. The true hypocrite never wants to be found. The true hypocrite never wants to be seen for what they're like in the inside. That shows that God's doing something within you. And how do you overcome hypocrisy? How do you overcome a life of putting on an image by being broken with each other? By modeling brokenness. Does anyone here want to put up their hand and say, I've got it perfectly together? Oh, I I thought you were putting up your hand there. (laughs) Sorry, I'll explain later. (laughs) But... No, we're all broken. We're all people who are sinful, who have simply been forgiven, who struggle, and the blood of Jesus goes on cleansing us, who live in a broken world and struggle with things that are not unspiritual, but like depression and grief and fear. And we need to come and be a part of a house that is a house of prayer for the healing of the nations.